How would you define an entrepreneur? Miriam Webster says it's someone who starts their own business, especially when this involves a new opportunity. Here's another fact for you. We are in a point in time when our profession is filled with new opportunities. I'm sure you're spotting them all around you. Take a profession that's bristling with change, throw in a bunch of smart people like you, and incredible things are bound to happen. But once you spot that opportunity, how do you translate it from an idea into a reality? How do you overcome all the doubters and the naysayers, especially when the loudest naysayer is probably you? Dr. Aaron Wallace is a veterinarian and a bona fide entrepreneur. Let's call it a vetrepreneur. I just coined that term. All copyright vetvelt. He founded Lacuna Diagnostics, a digital cytology company, while he was still a vet student and helped to establish and grow Lacuna to the point where it was too good to resist by the big fish. So, Lacuna's technology was recently bought by Heska and is rolling out across the world as we speak with the new name of HeskaView. Happy ending, right? But happy endings almost never happen without tough beginnings and good stories. In this episode, Aaron shares that story. We talk about entrepreneurship in veterinary science, or vetrepreneurship, about where the new opportunities lie in our profession, how to bring your big idea to the vet world, the traits that you learn as a clinical vet that will serve you really well outside of vet, and much, much more. Please enjoy Dr. Aaron Wallace. I'm Hubert Hemstra. I'm Gerardo Pollock. And this is The Vet Vault. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we kick off. So you'll notice that we'll be discussing Heska's newest must-have toy in this episode. And if you're a regular listener, you'll also know that our friends at Heska Australia sometimes give us financial support through paid ads for their in-house lab equipment. So does that mean that this episode is one big paid ad? Nope. Well, David from Heska did call me one day to suggest Aaron as a guest as someone with a very cool story and some interesting views on where the profession could be heading. Ulterior motives? Definitely. And was I suspicious of his motives? Yeah, a little bit. But did it turn out to be a great conversation, full of value for you? 100%. Well played, David. Well played. But they are paying us to say that this episode is supported by Heska Australia, the guys who are on a mission to help you to reimagine the way that you run your in-house diagnostics, from bloods to rads and now cytology. And a part of their mission is to make some major changes in how much it costs you to run a first-class suite of in-house diagnostics. They also have a bit of an under-the-radar, too-good-to-be-true, this-is-really-going-to-cost-us, but-we-really-want-your-business kind of a special at the moment that you may have heard about if you chatted to them at their AVA conference stand recently. But if you weren't there, then this is the only place you'll hear about it. We'll tell you more about it at the end of the episode. All I'll say now is that it has the word free in it, and we're not just talking about a free analyzer. That's so 2021. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Aaron Wallace. Dr. Aaron Wallace, welcome to the Vet Vault. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. I've been dying to do a couple of episodes on entrepreneurship and especially tech and, and what else you can do with Vet for a long time. And I think I feel like you're the perfect person to talk about it, so I can't wait to to get stuck into it. Oh, that yeah. sounds great. That's a topic I can talk about. That sounds I, good. I've got there are quite a few vets who've done completely different things in the, let's say, the tech or the entre- entrepreneurship game. 
And if you think about it, starting a practice is an entrepreneurial venture. There's Absolutely. It's the, the same principles are, are there. But I want to start with the first thing, our, our sort of standard question, just to get to know you a little bit. I was driving along a highway one day and I saw graffiti on the wall that said, bad decisions lead to good stories. I thought, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about. Is that true or not? So do you think it's true? Is there some truth in there? And if you do, have you got any examples? Uh, yeah, I think that's the classic business school answer of it depends, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm sure bad decisions can go either way. No, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's, it's probably, especially when we're talking about career decisions or business decisions, I think it takes some time for those things to play out and actually see if they end up being a good story or not. But for me, if that's what you're asking, yeah, I mean, I you know, kind of wear my undergraduate GPA as a badge of honor that I have one of the lowest GPAs ever accepted to veterinary school in the States. And I do that. <laughs> is that, is that a fact? A, is that a, you know that, that for a, a fact? That, that is a fact. Yeah. When I was accepted, they sat me down and told me I better be serious about this. But, but the reason I bring that up is that I think there's a lot of innovative people out there and there's a lot of great veterinarians out there that are sitting there saying, you know, well, my GPA is too low to be a veterinarian. And, and the reality of it is, is I, I'm open about it because, you know, I sat there with a barely passing undergraduate GPA and worked my way through. So the bad decision for me was, you know, I, I could have saved myself a lot of debt here in the U.S. with university bills and things like that had I just been focused and a little bit more of a mature student early on. That was a bad decision on my part. But in hindsight, it's a great story. I think that's what we're going to talk about today based on the invite is when you're forced to spend 15 years working inside of veterinary hospitals and, and doing every job inside of a veterinary hospital before becoming a veterinarian, it puts a little bit of different perspective on things. And so my bad decision to be a, you know, not very focused undergraduate student at university led to what we're going to talk to today of being an innovator and, and uh, you know, and a successful entrepreneur, hopefully in the future. So talk us through the journey. I don't, I, I sort of know the end point of your story, but I don't know where you started. Did you go straight into vet or what, what's been your journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I, st I grew up on a hobby farm in Pennsylvania, so East Coast here in the U.S., about, give you an idea, about five hours directly west of New York City. So that's Amish country, you know, used to be one of the highest producing dairy areas, you know, for milk in the United States. But I, I grew up on a small hobby farm that had some sheep and some goats and some chickens and, and really understood early on at a young age that the human animal bond was there. You know, I watched my sister and my family and I interact with these animals and thought it was special when the veterinarian would come out to the farm. So, you know, I started having an interest somewhere around the age of eight or 10 and wanting to be a veterinarian and through high school worked at the, the local clinic. The, the one doctor practically used to work at, he used to make me uh, come in and be the janitor at night to be able to come in and watch him do surgery during the day, which I thought was, uh, you know, that's probably a lost idea in today's world, but it really meant a lot to me to have to earn that time. That's amazing. It's complete sidetrack. Right? The vet that used to come in mm -hmm. and you to, to your farm, how did you view him? Like what was your perspective of him did you did you see him as a successful happy person who you wanted to be like or what was your, your view as a client as a, as a young person yeah no that's a great question um you know i think it's kind of it's it's starting to become a little bit of a lost art in that this was a, a mixed animal ambulatory veterinarian traveling farm to farm 40 50 minute drive between clients and he loved it you know he was working for himself he owned his own business 
And, you know, we were 4-H kids at the time. So we were young people learning about agriculture and learning about pets at that time. So, you know, we were a special kind of client for him, but he truly, you could, you could seriously, you could tell he truly enjoyed um, what he was doing. But on the flip side of it, he was also working very hard. And that was very obvious that at that early age, it wasn't, you know, the idea of becoming a veterinarian was not a, a glamorous stardom, you know, fame mm. kind of position. This is a, this is a working class professional working very hard to do what they love. And, and that was my perspective very early on. And that's what I thought I would end up doing. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I won't go too far down that we could talk for hours just about that. But I want to find out yeah. more about you. So, so you, yeah. you wanted to be that, you were happy with that. And then what was your, your journey into it? You said you had a, a low GPA. Or did you go straight to vet school yeah. after, after school or how did it go? No, I, I was told by two deans of admissions I would never get accepted when I would meet with the universities and say, hey, what do I need to do to get in? They're like, Go to human med, do something else, you know. <laughs> I um, like that. You're too dumb to be yeah, a vet. Yeah, Go be a yeah. human doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, it's true though. Um, but I, I, you know, I think being a, a young, gritty farm kid, someone telling me I couldn't do something was probably the motivation I needed to snap out of um, and, and of that and become focused. And you know, so I dove in hard. I was I was very fortunate to gain a position at a mixed animal practice right out of university, and 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 he didn't treat me like a you know, it was Dr. John Shapira, you know, just outside of where Penn State University is in, in Pennsylvania. And John didn't treat me necessarily like just anybody who was coming to work in his clinic. It was very much a, you know, you earned your rewards. And that when I left that practice after two and a half years, I had my own vet truck. I was driving around helping, you know, do the things I could in an underserved area where there were not enough veterinarians, probably skating the the practice acts a little bit closer than we, than we probably should have. But, you know, in the Amish community, there was no one to help them. So he fired me. He, John gave me a six month notice and said, Aaron, if you're going to be a veterinarian, I've done everything I can for you. You got six months and then you don't have a job here. Go figure it out. So, so, so what were you, so this was straight out of high school. You took a job at the vet practice doing nope. starting, starting. This was, after, this was, this was after university. Yeah. This was after university. So during you know, during high school, I would kind of volunteer and, okay. and work in the practice in town. And then I went to university and then I came back. So, so and, what was and university? I really started what, getting focused. What were you studying at university? Was that pre-grad course or what did you do first? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I went to a liberal arts college here. So there was no pre-vet or animal science or anything like that. The closest I could get to was animal psychology. So the university I went to, they actually had a full primate lab and they had a full honeybee lab where they would study animal behavior and psychology. So I spent most of my time in university working with honeybees and learning about, you know, the cognitive processes of these very, very small animals. And, uh, and it was an awesome experience. However, you're not going to go have a very promising career with a low GPA in animal psychology. So, so uh, while it was a great experience and I learned a lot, you know, that, that degree was, was kind of a stepping stone for me just to, to learn what university was like before getting to the real deal. Okay. So you did that. Then you got the job at the vet doing all sorts. What, oh, what yeah. sort of work were you doing? I mean, you know, I, I've worked now worked with hundreds of primary care veterinarians and, and board certified specialists and, you know, now going through university, working literally with the tip of the spear in academia. And John was the best veterinarian I've ever worked with. He he literally was James Harriet. We would go preg check cows in the morning and cut an LDA and then be off to the wildlife reserve. The last 
here's here's an example. The last day I spent with him, we palpated some cows in the morning and cut an LDA. And we went to the wildlife reserve. We spayed a mountain lion and we treated a bobcat for mange. We went in after lunch, saw appointments all afternoon, and then did two emergency surgeries that evening. I mean, this is the guy, this was his, this was this guy's day, which you know, as as a veterinarian myself today, I I don't have that skill set and never will have that skill set to actually treat that many species at that level. So that's that's kind of the things that I would do with him and the experience he he offered to me for those years of mentorship when I was with him. But what were you actually doing? So you're riding shotgun, holding stuff, passing stuff, actually doing work. Oh. Yeah. You know, sometimes I was driving out to the milk fever cow and grabbing a blood sample before the vet could get there because okay. the vet was you know two valleys over and not going to get there for a couple hours. Um, you know, you, you give that cow CMPK or does it need calcium or was it, you know, what does it need? Other times I was doing dehorning or ear notching or there was just so many different things that I was re- literally there as a, you know, I think what would be looked at as a, as a mixed animal technician. Okay. However, in that part of the country, there weren't any, I mean, okay. veterinarians were a complete solo show. Okay. It's very insightful of, of John actually to, to utilize you like that. I and mean, that's what we're trying to, in many practices, to teach people to outsource some of the stuff that it doesn't require a vet to do. Yeah. So he was obviously a, f- a forward-thinking, smart person. Yeah, no, I was very fortunate to run into this guy. I, I, I still stay in touch with him. Yeah. So then, so he said, all right, mate, you, you need to be a vet. Let's get out of this sort of halfway station that you were stuck in, get into uni. How did you get into vet school from then, from then with your low GPA. I kind of just looked at a map and said, where are you going to go? Look, where's the fresh start going to be? And, you know, the, the Rocky mountains of Colorado didn't seem like a horrible place to go. Um, so we headed, you know, I headed, my buddy and I headed across country and we moved here as in our early twenties and to Fort Collins, Colorado, where Colorado state university is. And I literally begged for a job. I mean, this was 2007, 2008. So, you know, the economy in the U S was, was not strong. And, the disposable income to spend on pets was was low. And it was kind of in this unique time where the specialization was starting to happen. You were starting to see these emergency specialty centers popping up in the US and the primary care physician wasn't, you know, doing everything they possibly could, wasn't on call all the time, that stuff. So I was fortunate enough to get a job as a kennel tech at, at a large specialty hospital. I think I was employee number nine or ten. Mm. I did my internship there, my emergency and critical care internship there, but 10 years later, and there were over 125 employees at that time Whoa. at that hospital. So, so yeah, so I literally begged for a job and just kept, you know, kind of having that grit mentality of, you know, saying yes to every opportunity I possibly could and ran into some other great mentors like John and, you know, Matt Rooney being one, Christine Shell being another, that was a practice manager and the surgeon who owned this practice that, you know, they, they couldn't really pay me what I probably deserve to be paid for the work I was doing, but they really understood intrinsic motivation and were giving me the opportunity to see things and learn things that would help me later in my career. And yeah, so I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and learning and eventually got to the opportunity where I could get into grad school and went to grad school and then went to vet school. Wow. So by the time you finished vet school, how many years out of school, out of high school? How long did it, how long was your journey to being a qualified vet? How many years? So high school to graduation from vet school was 18 years in the industry. Wow. Yeah, that's a long, long, you, you clearly really wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Well, that bad decision led to that good story. So I guess we answered your uh, your question. Yeah, well, that's a that's a very long journey. Here's a question that I've, something I've seen in the past. So again, we one of the reasons we started this podcast is because there's mm-hmm. a fairly high level of dissatisfaction amongst vets with their careers. But then I often mm-hmm. see vets who love being vets. They love it. They think it's the best job in the world. And when you dig yeah. a little bit, it's often a similar sort of story. It was not an easy run for them. They they really had to work hard. There was there was a lot of challenges, but they were dead set on on becoming vets. I have several friends like that who you know failed a couple of years and had to redo years and that, but they persisted yeah. and they and they some of the happiest vets I know. Do you think it's a it's just because they have have a, a more of a passion than somebody who's a smart kid and you know easy street into vet school and and, and never never really an an uphill challenge. Is there a link there at all? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think if, if we look at any profession, I think the grit hypothesis is true. You know, people who push through the hard times and have that grit are, are likely to be successful. But, you know, when I, when I'm mentoring vet students now or, or talking to high school kids who want to go to vet school, the advice I give them, and, and I think I'd love your opinion on this too, is go out there and see if it's for you. I think those of us that didn't do so well early on and were forced to go get all this experience to, you know, get in more on professional experience rather than academic achievements. We proved to ourselves that we understood how a veterinary practice worked. We understood that you're going to get dirty. You understand that it's going to be tough, and 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 you get all the things that are not so glamorous, and you see those things. Where sometimes I think that those that are you know have their academics amongst them and can kind of get in on a little not easier note, but a more streamlined note because everybody earns their own way in. Mm maybe doesn't get exposed to that as much. I don't know if you, if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I, I, would, I, I would, I would, I would. I would actually count myself as the, the counter example to you. I, I did well at school. Yeah. It was, yeah, I worked hard, but it wasn't a massive challenge for me to, to get into vet school. And, and that yeah. meant that I didn't spend a hell of a lot of time in practice. I went to see practice for a couple of days. So I really had no idea what I got into. Um, yeah, and I, I experienced a, a high degree of, disillusionment or almost surprise of shit this is what i've been yeah. working for all this time it's not it's not what i expected because you have this romantic idea uh, so i i think you spot on that's actually a very very in fact they they could almost make that a prerequisite of studying vet is to say you need to spend a bit of time in a vet practice as a tech or something like that before we even consider an application so that you we want to know that you know what you're getting into yeah it's tough though right because i mean i don't know what your world looks like there but there's just, we're, we're so short on veterinarians here, yeah, you know, yeah. so lengthening that road, you know, like that doesn't point. seem like a great solution. You know, one, one, one solution causes another problem, but yeah, I think I had something like 25,000 hours of experience when I applied to that school. <laughs> I think they require a few hundred, you know, but, but you know, it was, you know, when I walked in day one of being a doctor, I mean, I was equally as scared as everybody else, but I wasn't, I was. I didn't have this disillusion of what that day was going to look like. I knew exactly what that day was going to look yeah. like. Well, then the, the counter argument for what we're discussing is that we're assuming that studying vet is leading to one thing, and that is clinical practice. And that's sort of what we want to discuss today. Is that if again looking at myself, I I didn't hate practice, but it was tougher than I thought, and I didn't always sitting didn't always love it. And I've been working hard mm-hmm. for a. 20 year period to find other things that I can do with my degree. There I am having a podcast right. and that's because I, because I did vet. So, so assuming that if that somebody who doesn't love clinical practice, isn't going to love being a vet, 
well, what's your definition of a vet? So maybe we can dig into your other stuff a little bit more to see, well, how else can you use that? Because it's a good degree. It goes way beyond just fixing puppies and kittens. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to talk to and get to know some of the some of the most successful entrepreneurs in veterinary medicine. You know, guys like Ivan that created SmartFlow and who's now working on Galaxy Vets and Caleb Frankel, who's creating Instinct Science, you know, which is really revolutionizing the way records are done and things like that and just practice management software in general. And, and we've all had conversations and, and agree that clinical reasoning, you know, what we... I don't know if that's necessarily what they teach us in veterinary school, but what we end up perfecting as clinicians is our ability to look at a medical problem and grab data and assess that and group it together into differentials and and then start running diagnostics to rule out or diagnose that animal. And and, and that skill set and that way of thinking is probably way more difficult than we give it credit. You know, those that's what all those years of all that all those prerequisites and everything going through veterinary school and then getting on clinics has really taught us. And I think that by having that skill set, you can apply that to other things. Actually, I know that's so. I don't think so. I know that's so. And entrepreneurship and business are two great avenues for that because, you know, you go to B school and and they start teaching you these ways of prototyping or, or building a business or, you know, there's a book out there on lean startup methodology where, is basically the same exact process as our clinical reasoning. So what you're saying is, you know, are there other avenues out there? And the answer is yes. I mean, using your clinical reasoning skills to go through what they call a build, measure, learn, or get a minimal viable product out there and see what your customers think of it, take that feedback and fix it and build something else is exactly what we do in clinics every day. And in business and entrepreneurship, I think, are, are, are things that in the pet space and the veterinary space there's so much going on and there's so much new stuff and it's so exciting. And there's starting to be those translational components between human medicine and veterinary medicine that, yeah, there's so much you can do with your veterinary degree. But I was very lucky for my mentors to force me into practice. And I think getting that basis, like you have uh, maybe not 20 years, but getting those years of, of practice is, is key to being able to have the ability to do something later. So much to explore there. But I actually really like that. So it's, it's that art of problem solving. And again, anything you undertake in life, what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis is problem solving. That's, that's yeah. literally what what life is about, not just business. Yeah. Here's yeah. a problem, how are you going to solve it? And, and those lessons of saying, well, this is probably a very complicated problem. Let's start at one end and break it down systematically and see what it is. But like one of our previous guests said, uh, I'll, I'll read you his quote, and it, it sort of fits with, with the startup, he said that for him, private practice can be summarized as high consequence decision making in a complex environment with imperfect data on a budget. <laughs> How well does that fit, fit into, yeah. into the startup yeah. world? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's say you were figuring out how to market your podcast, right? I mean, the consequences of making a mistake are way less than what we deal with in clinical practice. Exactly right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then and the other one that comes to mind is one of my clinicians at university. When we were overwhelmed with these very complicated medical, especially the cases with multiple problems going on, he had a way of breaking it down. I don't know if all the specialists would agree with this, but I still live with it. I use this all the time, but treat what you see and then see what you're left with, which I think is, again, yeah. it's, a, it's a great business principle. Yeah. Now you said something else in there that I want to circle back to. I like what you said about the importance of being in clinical practice. So not just learning the theory of all this, but 
spending time in clinical practice. Have there been things that you've learned through years in clinical practice that you're applying on a day-to-day basis in outside of clinical practice in the business world? Yeah. I mean, you know, here we were, we, we had this startup and we're raising money and had customers and we're starting to go global right when I was finishing vet school. And, you know, I was at this fork in the road. Do I continue on with my co-founders and charge at this or do I go do an internship and dive into clinical practice? And my mentors, like I, I said earlier, they, they really, and my wife, uh, Alisa, you know, she, she really was a part of this too, made me think about that and say, you know, if you're short-sighted now on what's the opportunities that are ahead of you and you lose track of what you've actually put all this time in to do, which is to be a clinical veterinarian, you may never have the chance to do that again. And and I was like, oh, come on, like I could take a couple of years and I could go back and work. And and, and I'm and, and I don't think that's true. I, I think, you know, looking now I'm a few years out from that situation and being able to dive into practice with good mentorship. I actually did an internship, which if you asked me five years ago if I would have done an internship, I'd have said there is no way I would ever do an internship. I'm going to go into practice and do it. But, you know, I did an emergency critical care internship where I'd see 20, 25 cases in a shift and have 15 inpatients. And you know how that goes. I mean, that's that's learning. That's the school of hard knocks. And now, you know, now I miss it. And to answer your question, yes, like everybody says it gives you street cred. But the reality of it is that's just with yourself. I mean, I don't really care what some other veterinarian thinks about me as a clinical veterinarian when we're doing business, but I do care about the decisions that we're making and the teams that we're leading, because if you haven't been there and done it and you don't know what's going on in these practices, practices have changed a ton in the last 18 months, let alone the past, mm. you know, five years. So, so yeah, that, that piece of getting in there and getting that basis of clinical practice to me is the most valuable piece to being able to have all the doors open to you in the future. Because as we talked about, and I'm assuming we're going to continue to talk about with genomics and lab-grown meats and e-commerce and precision medicine and artificial intelligence and all this stuff that's out there, you have to be a good clinical veterinarian before you can start exploring those other avenues. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions. If you're interested in the whole startup thing, should you spend your time in practice, but you've just answered it. Um, so clarify for me the... The other aspect of your life, the development of Lacuna and, and um, the, the tech side, when and how did that start happening? Where, where were you in your journey when that happened? Was it your idea or was it, uh, yeah, tell me the story. Yeah, it was not my idea. Um, so <laughs> not that vet school is crazy enough. We, we were in a program where we were going to veterinary school during the day and then we were going to business school at night. So we were getting our master's in business while we were you know, in veterinary school. So there's a few. Everybody is that, was that standard for the course or did you choose that? No, no, there's, there's, it's a little box you check whenever you apply to a few schools. So I know, I know Colorado state has five students a year. I think Texas A&M has a program. I think NC state might have a program. Maybe Cornell's got a program. Penn's got a program. So there's a few universities across the country that do this. And the reality of it is, is that, you know, your MBA is kind of free because they can't charge you for any more credits because there's no bill code for it. So you're not adding to your student debt. But the reality of it is, is that it's very difficult to be getting both degrees at the same time because you're using one side of your brain all day and then you're going to class at night. And we literally were sitting around with professionals. You know, we, we were veterinary students and there were marketing professionals from Fortune 50, you know, sales professionals from Fortune 100 companies in a room and we're watching them 
collaborate and discuss and argue on different business topics for 22 months while we were going to veterinary school. So in order to exit the MBA, you had to build a business. Wow. So this was a proper M- MBA? Yeah, this is a real MBA. You, you, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love the yep. irony of the kid with the <laughs> I mean, uh, the kid with the low GPA. I mean, I've got a couple of going degrees to do a I double degree of boxes laying around, but yeah, it's a real one. Yeah, <laughs> but it also attracted a unique group of students because you had to get accepted to both colleges. You had to get accepted to the business college and the veterinary college. So about halfway through this program, they let us know that they were actually taking away the entrepreneurial piece of this program. And they were not going to have a the ending note be building a business. And we actually lobbied as a cohort and said, no, that's that's part of why we're here. I'll never forget it. Dan Brisnan, we're sitting, we're sitting in the first day of the MBA and the professor's going around the room going, why are you taking an MBA? Why are you getting an MBA? Why are you putting yourself through this torture? You're going to go work 10 hours all day and then you're going to come to this. It was easy for us because we were in a combined program, so we could answer that. But I'll never forget Dan saying – he was a VP of sales of a large company that we all know that I won't say at this point at that time. And and he said, I'm tired of walking into meetings and not understanding every word that comes out of everyone's mouth. That's why I'm here. So he was one of the vet students or he was actually just, just no, he purely, was, he was, purely he was just a business student. Just purely business, okay. He was just a business student, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so we, the five of us were going to vet school a day and business school at night. And then we had these professionals like this that had that perspective. Mm-hmm. So him and a bunch of us lobbied to get this entrepreneurial piece back. And, this, and the college didn't even resist it. They said, wow, if you guys want this, let's do it. And, and mm-hmm. they did. And they brought it back and, and they brought an amazing professor. And his name's Tim Galpin. You know, who had a ton of merger acquisition experience to lead this capstone class. So Connor and I, you know, Connor was an MBA DVM as well. We we really tried to personalize the MBA as we went through to veterinary medicine. So when we were in a leadership class, we'd be talking about what does that how does that apply to leadership in veterinary medicine? And if we were in a digital marketing class, like how does that apply to to veterinary medicine? And we'd talk with people in our networks and have email chains going and really tried to make this a, a veterinary MBA for us. So it came decision time where we had to build a business and I pitched my idea to him and he pitched his idea to me and I won because we did his idea. He was literally working extra hours on top of going to veterinary school during day and business school at night. I was still working at the practice I was working at. He was working in the ClinPath lab at the university, you know, with sample submissions and things like that. And he said, what is the value of digitizing the microscope slide? Like these things show up unmarked, lost, broken. So, but how samples did he, are frozen. How did he know that? Because I, I'll come back to it. But having not worked in practice, how did you guys even know that this was an issue? Or we, had he? I mean, we we had both been in practices okay, and had yes, experience, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, which comes back to to that that point we were talking about earlier. But he mm. literally was living it in the lab. Like he was identifying the problem of happened to try to call these veterinarians that submitted their sample, you know, and it got there Friday night. They had to wait till Monday morning to find out what the sample was or, you know, you know, you name it. There's a ton of different reasons why those samples get ruined. You know, they get packaged with formula and a cytology slide is ruined, like all that. So he said to me, what is the value of digitizing this? And I actually was at my wife's Christmas party at the time who there happened to be a clinical pathologist there. So I walked across the room and I said, what is the value of doing this? And he's like, we've tried, like it would be awesome, but like the technology's not there. It's too expensive. It's too slow. And, you know, everybody's been talking about it for years. And Connor and I said, well, maybe we should evaluate that. And we actually, Colorado State was great to us. They supported our decision to, to do the entrepreneurial thing. And they had this program and they helped us get to a human path conference in San Francisco a few weeks later 
where at the time there was, you know, how you go to a conference, there's all the different columns of the program. Like one third of one column on one day was digital pathology. I said, was a thing. And the, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a human medicine, but it was anatomic pathology. It was not clinical pathology. Okay. So it was histopath, yeah. not ClinPath. And this was just getting started. I mean, it, it was it was the first time it had ever been really talked about at these conferences because the technology was kind of starting to crest in human medicine. So the first thing was a breakfast. It was a breakfast roundtable where it talked about the return of investment of digitizing your hospital in Histopath. And Connor and I sat down at this table, and there were pathologists from the leading hospitals around the country. You know, and here we are, as for, not even first year veterinary students yet. And they said, what are you guys doing here? And we said, we're veterinary <laughs> we students. We want to do this in veterinary medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we, you know. and, uh, and they, they, they welcomed us. They said, that's smart. Like, you guys should do this in veterinary medicine. This is a good idea. And it took off from there. I mean, the, the story gets even better from there. But it took that initiative, one, for Connor to have the idea, and two, for us to get to that conference. I didn't want to go. I was like, Connor, this is, this is going to be a waste. Like, you know, you know, we got a lot going on. And it, and it really took off from there. So at that time, so that was January of 2016, February of 2016. The cost of a scanner was around 100,000 US. The, it was, it was, didn't have the way to make an image that was compactable. So the image sizes were four and five gigabytes. So you couldn't move them through the internet. You know, it would take, you know, hours to upload them in rural parts of the world. So they were using them on a network all in one hospital, right? mm. scanning it from third floor to 11th floor right. to the basement, things like that. And then the the service contracts were something ridiculous, like 25,000 US a year. So here you are with a machine that, yeah, while it was starting to happen, what we spent our time doing was getting that minimal viable product going to get it into veterinary hospitals at a cost point, that a price point that would work. Mm. Wow. So I'll tell you two stories of, of not going for the ideas because you, you have lots of ideas. And I, what I want to get to is why, what made you guys have the guts to say, yeah, we're going to go for this because there's many reasons not to. So probably around about the same time, I, I had my business, I had, a, I had a vet practice and I was driving somewhere, listening to lots of audiobooks and podcasts. And I'd listened to a podcast on AI, just nothing, nothing vet related. Then I switched it off after a while and I had, went through my head, okay, how, how could you streamline a veterinary business through AI? And one of the things I came up with with was mm-hmm. di- digital histopathology. I, I was an emergency clinician, so sometimes at 2 a.m. I had a case that I need, yep. wanted to make a decision on based on what's on the histopath. And I thought, well, imagine I could scan that, send it to somebody in America who is awake, and I have my decision now instead of waiting until tomorrow night keeping this. Yep. You know. It's a great idea, and I knew it was a good idea. Yep. But then immediately I, I thought about it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks even. And then I went, that's nah, too hard. I've got a lot going on, as you said. I've got kids, I've got this and this and this. I don't have the skill set. I don't know anything about the technology. Uh, the, my other excuse was I'm sure it's such an obviously great idea. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other people working on this who have the resources and the background. So let it go. But this is why when, because we actually, you and me crossed paths around about then or, or, or many years ago, because yep. I, I think I saw you on LinkedIn. I remember that. I can't remember. Yep. You reached out to me with this idea that I had had a year or two yep. ago. And I was, shit, the, yep. this, there's the guy who made exactly the thing that I thought. But the other example, non-vet related, yep. uh, this was in, 
where was this? When I lived in Wales, I started 2015, around about there, 2014. Uh, I was living in the UK and I was surfing and I bought my first waterproof camera, little Olympus camera. And I wanted to take, I wanted to take it surfing with me. I wanted to film surfing. Uh-huh. I wanted to, but I didn't have a housing for it. I couldn't, I wouldn't, didn't want to lose it in the ocean. And I, I actually started buying a couple of things to try and help me take my camera surfing with me. And then I thought, I should make something. I even tried to jimmy some system for myself and then let it go there. Like years later, I heard the story about that first, that exact same year in the summer, some guy was in Australia and he had the same problem. He wanted to film himself surfing and try to design a system and went, there's no good system. And he designed GoPro. <laughs> So I went, man, too hard. I yeah. went too hard, let it go. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, the other wow. guy went, I'm going to build something and that, that's GoPro. So the question is, what made you guys think there's this problem? Yeah. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to follow this. What made you have that arrogance almost to go, yeah, I think we can tackle this. We can do it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it takes a little bit of arrogance. I think it. I think it's more confidence, but I think it's a little bit of arrogance But it's the team, man. Like we were so fortunate to build a team. I I feel like we could conquer problems way bigger than what we conquered the the team that we had at Lacuna. We had Bakul, who is an amazing, amazing individual. He's an analytical chemist, had worked in biotech and pharma and had been very early in the CBD world, owned many apps, like understood business operations. Garrett, I mean... I, I tell everybody Garrett is a founder amongst founders. I mean, he spent 15 years with GE Oil and Gas and was a part of several acquisitions and leading international teams. He literally showed up one day. You know, we were just actually at a wedding together this weekend, and we were kind of going down memory lane a little bit about how him and I used to just clash all the time, right? Like, Garrett, you don't have to understand what a path review of CBC is. Like, just realizes it's out there, right? And Garrett would always be process mapping and understanding and piecing all this together, which was extremely frustrating at the time. But now as a skill set that I try to perfect myself because I get how important it is in business. But Garrett showed up one day with a platform. Like, yeah, scanner and technology and all of that is important. But if you don't have a platform to move these images to pathologists and reports back, and he created a platform, you mean uh, like like a software? Yeah, Mm. a software platform, just like you submit your rats. So, So while there is that I guess our opinion would be a small titch of arrogance. Others might think different and more confidence. It was that team. It's that team that matters. It's two things. It's team and timing, right? You have the best idea in the world. And it, I mean, it, it, you literally could. You just had two great ideas in that short amount mm. of time. The timing was right for both of them. But if you don't have the team, it's impossible. Maybe that's the key to go, yeah, these are the limitations. Right. Who else can I get to fill those gaps? But, you know, if it was fortuitous and one of your surfing buddies happened to have an injecting molding company for medical devices that could inject yeah. mold that camera into a device, yeah, GoPro would have been yours, right? But, but, but very, very seldom are entrepreneurs honest about team and timing. You know, a, a mentor of mine and a friend, Adam Little, you know, who's one of the leaders of veterinary innovation worldwide, I love his saying that no one cares about your crappy startup idea. People are afraid to share their ideas and things because they're afraid they're going to get out there and people are going to take them. If you can't execute on them, it doesn't matter. So, you know, that's the other, the other, one of the other learnings is 
you know, we shared this. We we were we were sharing this idea. Mm-hmm. We were talking with our professors. We were going to conferences. We were asking the big lab groups, chase them down at conferences. What do you think about this? But it really came down to the team. And those guys are, you know, I'm here in front of you today and I'm the I'm a veterinarian and oftentimes I am, but those guys those guys are the ones that made this happen. So how did you build that team? Was it fortuitous or did you go looking? Did you go, all right, these are the people we need. Let's go hunting for them. Well, we had a 16-month interview process, right? Because we had been sitting in business school with these gentlemen for 16 months, right? And it's like, well, we need an entrepreneur. So there's Bakul and we need IT and you know, there's Garrett, right? So we got to see just how much experience they had and how hardworking they were and their knowledge. I mean, you know, these are, like I said, all of them founders amongst founders. It just was fortuitous that we were in this program and we all were willing to make the leap. You know, you read these business books, mm-hmm. they talk about taking the leap to your idea, but we were all willing to do that, which again is another piece. So it's about possibly about putting yourself in the right environment. You've got to be surrounded by like-minded people who are, are willing to, to try something. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I would say that's accurate. And I think that comes down to sharing that idea. You know, like if you keep that idea bottled up, there's risk to that. I'm not going to say there's not, you know, but if you don't share that idea, you don't find that team. There could be someone right in front of you, like we had, where mm. those guys didn't know anything about the veterinary industry, right? And here they are. You know, I, I argue that Garrett and his team built one of the best pieces of software that veterinary medicine has ever seen. And they had no idea of anything going on in veterinary medicine, right? But if we wouldn't have been able to, you know, if we'd have protected that idea and Connor and I have been like, hey, let's do a let's do a softball idea for the class. And then once we learn everything, we'll go do the real idea afterwards. No, we didn't do that. We put the idea on the table and we had the expertise of our entire cohort helping us build the business model and our capstone, which is the last class to get us out of the MBA. We had to build a business. We had the mentorship of the professors. We had all of that. So it's, you know, I think putting yourself in that environment, um, my grandfather, my grandfather always used to tell me, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. But, but I think it's also getting that idea out there so people can latch onto it with you. Before I want to ask you about the actual product, um, the, it's really cool. I've looked into it, but I want to ask a few questions, but before we do that, do you think at some stage in an vet career, it's, it's a good idea to do a business course, an MBA or something similar. Does it add a lot of value, do you think, to, to your life in general or career, shall I say? Let's be honest. If you're a veterinarian, you're a pretty smart guy. We're a pretty smart gal, right? You could probably teach yourself this stuff without taking a formal course, right? Like, you know, introductory business stuff is no pulmonary physiology. It's just not. Like it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's really not. Okay. Now I think advanced level stuff. I mean, it's, it's so strange you see that though, because I, uh, biology is so familiar to me that I find it easy to understand concepts. Whereas if I read business books, I'm like, I don't understand the language you're speaking. I don't get this at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, but, but just like with pulmonary physiology, you'd have to look up some words and things like that. So let's be honest, like a, a very, 100 level introductory accounting class, you could probably teach yourself by reading a book. You know, I I just had a conversation with a colleague over the weekend. She's thinking about going to get her MBA. And I I said this, like, uh, I speak for Connor, but him and I agree on, on this. He's told me over and over again, you don't really need the MBA. And I agree. Like Connor is, is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. He could have taught himself everything in that MBA by looking at books and reading books and podcasts and talking with people. I'm not it right? Like I'm not that person. We talked about that earlier. I, academics are hard for me. 
you know, so I needed that structure to be able to get through and get that. But I do think that being open to the idea of understanding business in today's veterinary climate is very important. And I think it would be my opinion, if you're looking for an alternate career, other than clinical medicine, having a basis in business is the first stepping stone to being able to do that. Do you need to go to that full MBA? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, but, but, but you say that. But then again, the story you just said about surrounding yourself with the right sort yeah. of people, yeah. even just that might, because I, I love listening to non-vets, listening and reading, um, but it's not structured. My learning's not structured. So I learn a lot of things, but I don't know that I can always figure out how to apply it. And then again, it's a lonely way to do it by yourself, whereas doing a course or something, you're going to meet, you're going to meet people who might nudge you in a direction that you didn't even consider. Totally agree. I totally agree. But but the question is, is there's so much continuing education out there now, right? Like there's certificate programs from Ivy League business schools where you can do five classes over a seven month period and get a certificate in business strategy, let's say. So it's like, you know, that's the question is, do you really need that full MBA? Because those have cohorts and those have people and they have chat channels and, and different way. I just finished one, you know, they're they're great. So that's what I say is, if you're going to make that full commitment to do the full MBA, I mean, education is what you get out of it, right? Like, it doesn't really matter where you go if you're not going to put the effort forth. But, you know, I'd say, yeah, if you like it and, and want to follow that, then, yeah, maybe you go for the full MBA. Should should it be a part of veterinary education? Absolutely. I think I think there should be some business elements above and beyond what's out there. And some schools are doing a great job with that on our side, you know. Cornell's doing a great job with that, and Penn is, and, and Colorado State is. I'm sure there's universities down in your neck of the world that are doing it as well. I think business should be incorporated, but I don't think everybody should go get a full MBA. And there's so many MBAs out there. It opens up so many doors, don't get me wrong, but if you have that veterinary knowledge and you were in practice and you know how practices work and you know how they function, you know how to talk to clients, and you know how to mentor technicians, and then you go find a niche of business that you get some education and you're interested in, there's going to be a career for you without an MBA. Right. Let's talk about the product. So yeah, Lacuna is what you build and it's a digital uh, cytology system yep. that summarize it pretty nicely. So how does it work? So you, you do your smear uh, like you would normally. So an FNA of a lymph node or whatever you do, and then you chuck it on this machine. And then what happens from there? How does the magic happen? Yeah. So take your aspirate, let it dry, stain it, right? So whatever stain you use, diff quick, right schemes, so whatever, stain it, let it dry, pop it in the scanner. The scanner, you know, there's lots of technology out there now. You know, we started this in 2016. Few, yeah. Now there's, yeah. I don't even know how many players out there doing it. So, so it's not, the magic isn't as easy as just scanning it. You got to make sure that it's a diagnostic quality image. We talked about image size a little bit earlier. You know, you got to have a right size of image to be able to move it. So the scanner goes across and scans the slide. It then basically creates that to, into an image, just like on your phone. You know, it's just a photo. So it's not just a, it's not just a photo. So because I, I just you know you put your iPhone over the microscope. It's not it's not as simple as that. It's actually a yeah. So it's whole slide scanning. So we're scanning the entire microscope slide with our product, and that's important because the alternative is region of interest, which is what you're talking about. Taking a small piece with your cell phone camera. A lot of what I've been doing over the past few years is just saying it's okay as veterinarians to have the humility that cytology is hard. 
And the, the, the consequence of making a mistake in cytology can be grave. So by scanning the entire slide and getting it up to a pathologist, you and I driving around and taking small pictures, I mean, trust me, I've looked at a lot of cytology over the past five years. I'm not very good at it. But just me taking some regions of interest is not what we do. We scan the entire microscope slide so every cell on that slide can be evaluated by a clinical pathologist. That then gets uploaded along with the patient information for a pathologist. We have a global team of pathologists, New Zealand, Australia, UK, Germany, all the time zones across the United States that allow that to be evaluated and a report sent back to you in the hospital. And I think when we started in 2016, we were getting data that the average global turnaround time was around five to seven days with some of it being as high as two weeks. What? Yeah, we, we, we started doing we started doing a few thousand cases for an awesome university in Hong Kong uh, when they were struggling to get pathologists. And it was a two-week turnaround time for them in Hong Kong. And we brought that down to, I think we were averaging, when last time I looked, we were averaging 44 minutes turnaround time. Wow. Yeah. So now, granted, some parts of the world, we manage those expectations. So Australia, New Zealand, it might be six, eight-hour turnaround time. You know, New York City, it might be five minutes. But again, it's way faster than the traditional methods. So yeah, whole slide image gets put up into the portal, fill out the portal with the patient information, blood work, problem list, ultrasound results, whatever you got. All of it goes to the pathologist, report comes back to you. And is it 24-7? Because you've got pathologists around the world. If I'm in Australia at two in the morning, obviously from an ECC perspective, yeah. sometimes you want an answer in the middle of the night. Is that, vi- yeah. is that something that's viable? Yep. Yeah. So like, again, we've just started, you know, I had this guy, you years ago that wanted a scanner, but just never really signed the contract. So we're just now, uh, we're just now getting up and running in Australia. Um, you know, so, so Man, I, I, I love that. I, I, I can tell you why I love the idea, but uh, we, um, we were very fortunate. Our, our lab that we used, yeah. they had a pretty quick turnaround time, yeah. 12, 24 hours. Yeah. And then it was, and they were still, still cheaper, yeah. but I was very yeah. sad not to sign up because I really liked the idea. Yeah. yeah. Hey, just, just saying, you, you could have the first unit in the country. <laughs> I was going to be your agent, man. I was kind of my long, my <laughs> yeah. long game was going to be. I'm going to, I'm going to use yeah. it like it, and then become the lacuna guy. In Australia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I remember that those conversations. Yeah. So, so yeah, we are. You know, I've spent ninety percent of my career in 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 emergency and critical care, uh, and that's what I my internship was in. And when I go practice on a Saturday, that's what I do. And yeah, we're there twenty four seven. You know, nights, weekends, holidays, our turnaround times can get stretched out a little bit. Uh, but we still do an excellent mm-hmm. job. And, you know, when I get pushback from clinicians and medical directors about, well, you know, I want 45 minute turnaround time at midnight. And it's like, how much cytology are you doing at midnight? You like, come on, like, <laughs> you know, like, come on, how much are you doing? But we still, you know, what I, what I, you know, my role in all of this, we've all had many, uh, but one of my, one of my key pieces was the strategy. Like, how do we fit the needs of our customers? And what I tell a lot of the emergency clinicians, we manage expectations and say, very rarely are you ever going to transfer that patient to the next shift without having an answer. We do a great job of even overnight. So it starts rolling around to six, six o'clock AM your time and you're on an overnight, you know, we, we're scaling up our time to make sure those cases are getting cleared out. So if it's Sunday night and you want to know to refer that if you're in a big specialty hospital and you want to know to refer that to an oncologist or an internal medicine specialist, we have that answer for you. Or if you're in a 24 hour facility and you're like, is this spleen neoplasia or not? If it's not, I'll probably keep it. Mm. Um, but if it is, we're going to try to get that to the university. So we, we really do a good job of making sure we, we get those things finished before the end of your shift. And then is it is there an AI component at all to the analysis or is it all still human pathologist? Driven? Yeah. 
Great question. So we made it a mission and a part of our mission early on that our goal was not to replace the human pathologist. Okay. That was not a, uh, a completely honor-driven mission. It was, it's really hard. Other, other things, histopathology, radiology, artificial intelligence and neural networks do a much better job with those specimens because they're perfectly flat. When you look at cytology, you've got cells on top of cells, and neural networks have a really hard time with that topography. Scanners do too when it comes to scanning them. So with our system, there is no artificial intelligence forward-looking. We're working on it. We have been working on it. We're working on ways to get to more definitive diagnosis for, for the pathologist. For instance, you know, how cool would it be with a mast cell tumor? You know, we can't grade them on cytology. We have to wait till histopath. And then we got these drugs coming out like Stelfanta where you no longer cut them off and send them off, you treat them with a drug, so you never get a grade. So how cool would it be if a neural network could give you some type of grading on a cytology? And, and we're working on ways for neural networks to do that. There are people in the space that are touting that they have it and they're ready, they're not. That's, that's marketing, um, and I'll say that very confidently. Everything that's done is read by a pathologist. However, we are working on tools that will make the pathologist faster and, and make those turnaround times even faster. But also, most importantly, can we get to a more definitive diagnosis for our pets than, than what we can currently just with human eyes? Wow, that's super exciting. You mentioned that this, there are actually quite a few players in the game now, and it, and it is funny. This, I think that's exactly what was my thinking back when I had this idea. I, I sort of thought that I'm sure the people who do this for a living are thinking the same thing and they're working on it. Yeah. And it feels like everybody's sort of reached the, reached the same point at the same, roughly the same time. Cause I suddenly, I heard of you first because I was looking and then mm -hmm. subsequently I've heard of quite a few other companies with something similar. Yeah. Uh, is there anything differentiating the different ones? Is there anything that makes Lacuna system unique or, and again, I'm sure you're not biased at all about. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that, I, I think that there, there are, you know, I I think that this is how I answer this question. I'm not going to answer it biasly. I'm going to answer it how I would look at any technology, right? Mm -hmm. You got to look, you got to get beyond the marketing and you got to figure out what's really going on. So if I came to you and I said, Hugh, we're X laboratory company and you've heard of us and you use our other stuff and we've now got this great product. The first thing you should say, well, how many cases have been done through it? Last time I looked, it was something like 60,000 paid cases we have completed. And that was way before joining HESCA, which, you know, now the purchasing power and the scaling of HESCA is going to make that number go, you know, we've only been with them months, not years, you know, so these things break and there's bugs and there's things you got to figure it out. Garrett and his team's platform never has went down. Now, someday it may, we may have a bug, but we've never had it go down. Wow. That's, that's because of the team, right? Now we have scheduled maintenance and sometimes your scanner breaks. We got to send you a new one. Those things happen. Mm. But we pride ourselves on, we've been here and done this. Our platform is designed to get you to the most definitive diagnosis. For instance, just clicking lymph node and scanning a lymph node and sending it off. Well, the pathologist wants to know some more stuff, right? And you've got seven things dying on your ER floor. You don't have time to be sitting there thinking you haven't slept in two days. You haven't eaten in half a day, right? So you haven't even peed all day. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cause you haven't eaten or drank anything. Right. <laughs> you know, you, know, you got to follow your in, then you're out, you know? So, so, <laughs> so, so our platform is designed to help you have a decision tree to get there. So 
was it enlarged? Was it painful? Or other ones enlarged? You know, have you done chest rads on this? Right. So there's a decision tree that helps the pathologist know. Wow, there's a this is a canine in southeast Australia that's got a peripheral lymphadenopathy and has historic interstitial pattern that's been treated on and off with pred. That might hit some type of regional zoonotic disease, right? That if you just click lymph node and send it off, you don't. So yeah, there is a big differentiator. Are the competitors going to catch up? Yeah. I mean, they will. They'll figure it out. But right now, I really like the decisions that we've made at Lacuna, and, and which is now Hescaview. And I really like the way we've positioned it for our customers, which is you, the veterinarian. We aren't worried about sending things off to reference lab or not because we don't have them. We're not worried about, do we need to read this case three times for you and charge you three times? No, we, we've built it. So you aspirate that lymph node, send it to us, and it comes back. All the cells are, are ruptured. You can aspirate again and send it back to us, no additional charge, right? Other players aren't doing that. Nice. So I'm, yeah, <laughs> that's I'm giving, really, I'm giving that's you a really couple nice. examples of if you dive past the marketing, you will see that this is the, the Lacuna system, the Hescue system has been designed to partner with you in a hospital, not to be your client or, or not to be your, your provider, but to be your partner. You, real, you literally are hiring, I think, 20, now 20 board certified pathologists to come into your practice and help you with your cases. So, so you got to get past the marketing to be able to see that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I think it's time. Um, yeah. So, so the Hesca, did you guys sell? So you built it under the name of Lacuna. Did you mm -hmm. sell it completely or sell the technology? What What's the go? Yeah, it was, it was a full acquisition. We were, okay. you know, competition was was coming up, and and we were looking for a partner that was going to understand the quality and speed. Every decision we've made since 2016 has been based on how do we improve the quality, how do we improve the speed. Kevin Wilson and Heska and the team there, they never pushed on that with discussions. They never turned this into a higher margin business by spreading out turnaround times, never talked about limiting the credentials of our pathologists to cut costs. They wanted to keep the brand and keep the partnerships as strong as it possibly could and run with it. So we decided to join Heska in February of last year and, and have been scaling with them since. So that's why we're coming to your part of the world. So are you out of it now? Now that it's sold, are you is Aaron done with Lacuna or are you still part of the team somehow? No, I'm I'm still a part of the team. You know, have not completely transitioned out. You know, we'll see if I'm needed. I think we're getting to that point where I want to have impact and I want to drive it. And let's be honest, like, you know, with a global sales team and a global marketing team and people way smarter than me in business, I I think the need for me is diminishing. So, you know, those are conversations we're gonna start having, but you know, when I get asked this question with our, you know, customer base, you know, we, we work with the big groups and, you know, the big flagship hospitals, I tell them like, this has been turned over to the people that are continuing what you've seen. And I've checked in with hospitals since joining HESCA. I'm not completely involved in the pathologist anymore. I'm not completely involved in everything like I was. And no one has even noticed, which is a great feeling. So can't say I'll be with HESCA forever, but we're going to see where I fit in the digital cytology game because there might not be a need for me very, very long from now. Challenges in this journey. It's an incredible story. It's a, and, it, and it's a pretty quick turnaround. If you said 2016, it's not even a 10-year journey. So so kudos, man. What Were there points in the journey where you almost got stuck, where you felt like, mm, no, this isn't going to work. I'm, 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 I'm about to quit. Did you have any points like that? Like, I don't what think, were the hardest things about all of this? No, I don't, I don't think anybody was ever going to quit. I think we were almost forced to quit a few times. So this whole slide scanning technology we're talking about, we talked about when we went to that PATH conference in 2016, these things were 10 times the cost of what they are now, you know, these scanners. So, so 
we were using a minimal viable product technology. It was actually software that was created by NASA to, to map the stars in the sky. So as you would drive a stel- oh, wow. as you would drive a telescope across the stars, it would record them and then stitch them together to build a map of the stars. So there was a company, a can- Canadian-based company, that was licensing this for microscopes. So as you drove across the microscope slide, it would stitch it together. So we were training hospitals to drive across the slide on 4x, then drive across the slide on 20, and then drive across it on 100. And it would build this image that you could then zoom down into. So we had three of those units going. In we had we had no funding. We were going business pitch competition to pitch competition and pitching to win money to buy these things to be able to put them into hospitals, right? To buy these microscope cameras and the software to put them into hospitals. And we were out of money. We had three of these going. We had a platform that was working. We had pathologists that were using it. Uh, we had hospitals that were using it. We were out of money, and no one was going to. We weren't going to be able to raise any money with this thing that you had to drive around. I mean, no one has time for that. But we were, like we were talking about earlier, we had a minimal viable product that we were learning all of these things and adapting our platform and getting ahead. You know, when I say get past the marketing, ask them how many cases they've done. We've we've learned a ton over the years on how to do this. And Modic came out with a scanner that was at our price point that was commercially available that no longer required this to drive, and we were able to mm-hmm. work with Modic to customize that for veterinary hospitals. If we wouldn't have had that happen, timing, if that timing would have happened six months later, we may not have existed as a company anymore. There's only so much student loans you can put into a company and and and, and get it going, you know? So, 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 so you didn't have external funding? Not at you that point. Bootstrapping. Not at that point, no. You know, we had, we had all thrown in a few thousand bucks. And, and like I said, we were traveling pitch competition to pitch competition, just competing against sometimes veterinary businesses. Sometimes we were just walking into, you know, big time competitions where we were competing with people outside the industry. And the winnings of those competitions is how we funded it until this product came out. And then we won a pitch competition in Las Vegas in July of 2017. It was $25,000, which allowed us to purchase our first couple of these scanners then get them out and prove them and then we started raising money off of that so as points it's really no one was really ever going to quit but there were points where the budget was very very thin um let's put it that way wow so what what has aaron learned from the last five years what's well, sort of a let's call it a decade what, what, what how, how do you think differently about things what have you changed your mind about life or work or yourself or anything in the last five to 10 years? I think, I think personally, my vision of success has changed a lot. I think that, well, I know that at one point I thought being my, my mentor, John was it, you know, and had I done that, I, I think that success, that would have been success and that would have been great. And then at one point I thought I was going to be a board certified surgeon and, you know, had I ever passed boards, that would have been successful too. You know, I think that was it, but Really, what's changed for me is is more impact. Like, it's not fame, it's not money, it's not being in the spotlight. I mean, I love having conversations like this, but it's really how can we impact more pets and more veterinary teams? You know, the veterinary space is very sensitive. We're fortunate to be where we are. New grads are coming out making more money than they've ever made, and pets are getting better care than they ever had. But it's very sensitive. We we need as entrepreneurs and 
and business people, we need to be responsible. And my vision of success has changed a lot over the past five years because it's not paying off my student loans or going on vacation that makes me successful. It's not those monetary things that really my perspective on having impact for our profession has changed a lot to what I define as success. Maybe that's something you've went through too. You know, it's not one pet at a time, but having something like this to inspire other people is, is your way of doing that. But that has changed a lot over the past five years. And maybe that's normal. Maybe that's not. I don't know. But that's the first thing that pops into my mind. So what's the impact that you hope to have through, and we'll, we'll come back to what's next for you, but what, what, what's the impact that Aaron would like to leave on the vet profession? Well, I, I think that anytime there's big money, there's big business, right? Like, you know, there's now mm-hmm. big, big money in vet med. Well, there's organizations that own candy bar companies and, and there's organizations that own fast food chains and there's banks that you have a credit card in your wallet and they also own veterinary hospitals. The impact I want to have is to steer that those things in the right direction. A lot like what we talked about with cytology, I really want to have the impact that we are changing things to benefit all the stakeholders and not just the bottom line. Profit margin's great. Mm. You know, multiples on EBITDA are great, which is a big thing that veterinarians talk about these days that 20 years ago, they would have been like EBITDA. Like, is that, what is that? Is that a cardiac disease EBITDA? I don't know what that is. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that what you get when you dog eats a grain-free diet is EBITDA? Um, but, <laughs> but, but I want to, I want to be, I want to be in a spot where I can help be the litmus test on where we should be driving things to benefit the pet, the pet first, and the pet parent and the and the veterinary team second. To me, that's 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 where the impact is for someone like myself. I love clinical medicine. I hope to get back there full time someday and have some impact there. But right now, I'm, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the business end and how to help steer these ideas on a bigger level than what we that we've been working on. Are you doing clinical work at the moment, eh? or none yeah. at all, or a little bit, or yeah? I mean, you no. know, I try to be that that guy that. We'll pick up the ER relief shift on the weekend. Yeah. It's been a couple months since I've done it, but I really have the goal to try to get in two shifts a month. So we're going to get back to that here this summer with travel dying down. But yeah, I love it. I'm I'm not nearly as fast as I was. I'll tell you that. You don't use it, you yeah. lose it. But yeah, still still practicing as much as I can. And then what's next? If you are not needed, if it turns out you're not really needed in Lacuna slash Hescaview, next moves. Have you got have you got plans or do you still need to decide or what what's tickling your interest at the moment? I mean there's a lot of cool stuff, you know. I think the genomic space is really interesting. I've been focused on diagnosing cancer for the past 6 years, so obviously the genomics side of of cancer is really interesting. I think diving in there would be fun. Obviously telemedicine is interesting. I'm not a I don't pound the drum on telemedicine. I don't think telemedicine is is going to fix every problem in veterinary medicine. But I do think there are key pieces to telehealth and telemedicine that, that our profession can benefit from, lacuna being one of them, teleradiology being one of them, you know, who knows what else. So that's an interesting space for me. Precision medicine, kind of along the genomics end, I'm not sure, you know. What's precision medicine? Meaning meaning tailoring treatments for the individual patient based on their genetics and that stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, so like you if, you, if you take the cancer space, you know, the oncogenes in people are the same as the oncogenes in dogs, right? So if you're you have a certain set of mutations in a certain gene being able to prescribe that drug to that gene rather than, you know, 
starting with PRED and getting on a CHOP protocol for lymphoma. That's what's, I mean, that's what's going on, right? Like that's what's going on in the genomic space right now is, you know, you and I, we think about lymphoma in four buckets. Well, really three buckets. We think about small cell, intermediate cell, and large cell lymphoma, right? And then whenever we go to large cell, we're like, well, B versus T. B is bad, bad B bad, T terrible, right? But these, mm-hmm. that's where we end as, as ER clinicians, right? Get the sample, send out the flow, get the dog started on PRED, get it feeling better, and then let's see what we got. And, and now, which I'm no expert in this, but the way I understand it is we're diving into the mutations of these oncogenes, like, you know, for lymphoma, and there might be a hundred different subtypes of small cell lymphoma. So, you know, for me, this is so interesting because we've all had those dogs that have done really well on a CHOP protocol. We've had other ones that haven't done well. And is that because some of those mutations respond well to a CHOP and other ones don't? I don't know. But to me, that's just super interesting to, to where precision medicine could be going, not only for veterinary, you know, but but then where that can translate over to humans. So if you were back, in, back at uni at the start of your MBA and they said to you, you need to start a business, a project, but it's now, it's 2022. What would you start on? Where do you think you'd head? I'd open veterinary hospitals. Oh, really? I would. I would. Um, uh, just just because it's the, 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 the demand is so high. No, no, it's not that. It's, it's, it's challenging, right? We don't have enough vets. We don't have enough veterinary technicians. We don't have enough vet anything. So I think... I think the IVMBAs would tell you you're absolutely crazy to go into a market where there's no resources. But mm. there's some companies and groups out there doing some really different stuff. I really like what Steve Eidelman's doing at Modern Animal. Are you familiar with them? Oh, I saw ads for it. I didn't know his name. Yeah. But I've, I've seen some of their marketing and it's yeah. That's cool. They're doing like it differently, it. right? They're, they're, they're getting control of everything. All the tech, the practice management software, the telemedicine, the hospital, the training. They're, they're internalizing it all you know that's really cool um there's another one bond they're, they're based on new york city they're they've got an urgent care kind of hybrid urgent care somewhat er model with with general practice it's cool i i think i think there's room for people who think about veterinary hospitals differently to impact the, the health of pets and all stakeholders the pet like we said that's a must there has to be impact and it has to be impact on the pet patient first and then the veterinary team and the, the pet parent second. And I think if I was going to start today, I would start diving into the niche markets of where could we really impact veterinary hospital? Maybe that's low cost clinics. Maybe that's boutique concierge medicine. I don't know. Yeah. If you steal out all those needy, wealthy clients, maybe there's more room for, for the other ones, you know, at the veterinary hospitals. I don't know. But my, my knee jerk reaction is, is I would build hospitals because we've got to be able to do them more efficiently without the cost of our people. That's a big lift though. That makes digital cytology seem easy. Mm. That makes it, that makes it sound easy. <laughs> yeah. I must admit, I, I think the same. I often think why in the current market am I not in business ownership anymore in owning some, and, and I, I know partially why it's because of exactly the challenges because it's fucking hard. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are in business and it's, yeah. it's, it's exhausting. But exactly that, finding a way to do it in a sustainable manner where you're not relying on employing 20 vets for your massive hospital or 100 techs uh, will make life much easier. I I often wonder about niching down condition-wise. So non-specialist run but specialized vet businesses. So let's say we handle all of your tricky endocrine cases. 
Yeah. So the ones that suck up all the time at a vet clinic yep. and all the vets go, oh, it's that diabetic cat that we just can't get under control. Yep. They don't want to go to a specialist or we don't have access to say, well, this guy, that's all they do. Yep. Go chat to them. Uh, I, I wonder about that it, as a solution. And you get really good at that. I and- love it. I mean, it's just like outpatient surgery centers in human med, right? Or, or renal dialysis, right? Like you're not going to a specialist to get your GP. Yeah. You, well, yeah. you don't get your yeah. GP. <laughs> you know, um, I agree. I mean, I just think like, you know, this is this, when it comes back to that impact thing, it's, I don't want to just build veterinary hospitals to get to a 22 EBITDA and sell it for a multiple of 15 and retire. Right. Like I don't like, and I've got a mortgage and student loan debt and I drive an 11 year old car, but there's gotta be a way to niche into that where you get the multiple and we can better the profession. I'm watching it happen. I mean, I think Steve and Mo at, at Steve at Modern Animal and Mo at, at Bond, I think they're extremely talented operators. I think they're very, very, very smart people and dedicated to the profession. They're doing it. I'm watching it happen. What is the, what, you know, what is the next niche? You know, what, where are those small pieces? Like you said, yeah, endoc- endocrine cases, diabetics, you know, we're seeing oncology centers pop up in the U S where, that's all they do is oncology and they've got surgical onc, medical onc and radiation oncology there. So that, you know, you as the, the hospital owner, that square footage now gets to turn into a dermatology suite, not oncology because you've moved that, you know, mm-hmm. to another building. But mm-hmm. I agree. I think there's got to be a way to, to do it a little different. And if I could sit, if I could sit in a room with 64 professionals that were as talented as the ones in the MBA and be like, well, that guy's a franchising expert and that guy's a real estate guy. Maybe we could, uh, we could find that, you know? So, you know, but that's, that's kind of where I'm pointing on things. It seems like you, you think that's a win too. hundred percent. It brings to mind what you're talking about, the impact. Um, I I, I keep mentioning him because I'm obsessed with his podcast, but Seth Godin, I don't know if you're familiar with his books and his podcasts, but he has a saying that he uses all the time. It's one of his sort of his mantra is make things better by building better things that fits with what you're describing them. Yeah. Make things better. That's the first thing that should be the goal. Yeah. And then there's the means. All right, let's wrap this up, mate. Are you a podcast listener? You know, I, uh, <laughs> there's a few stressful moments in, in my career so far and acquisition was one of them. And we had a great acquisition experience. I mean, Kevin and his team was so generous to us and helping us as young entrepreneurs through that. But I took the whole year of 2021 and said, I'm not going to listen to any podcasts. I'm not going to read any business books. So I've been kind of, you know, I tried the whole Netflix thing out. That's not for me, but I'm going to get back into it, but don't really have any. any so, good so sorry. Why, why, why did you make the decision? Just because you were, you were mentally too busy with other stuff and you didn't want more input I mean, or what, what was that decision based on? I mean, that's all we, that's, if you think about it, that's all I've been doing, you know, I'm 38 years old and that's all I've been doing basically since my adult life started at age 18 is learn things to, to push things forward. Right. Like, so I started mm-hmm. picking up books like the history of medicine, right. Rather than listening to podcasts and business or things like that. So I, I was talking to, talking to a friend about this and, and they're like, well, you know, you don't have to cast all podcasts aside. Maybe you should listen to some other stuff. So so that's where we're at now is I guess I'm supposed to listen to how we built this. People are telling me that's a good one, you know, but I, I've, I've kind of just mm. stayed away from all of it recently. And the decision was just, I needed a break from 
grabbing every white paper, every book, every podcast, every everything to learn about everything that I've kind of paused. So if you have a recommendation on me getting back into it, then then please give it to me. But I don't have any to really recommend to the listeners. Ooh. Seth Godin. Seth Godin's Akimbo podcast yep. is, it's more philosophy. Yeah. It's more, I don't know, he's a marketer, but it's not, he talks about everything and it's actually really e- oh, easy cool. entrance. It's not too deep. It's more more about values and and doing the right thing rather than strategy. Awesome. So that'd be a good one to start. But you you're supposed to be the one giving well, no, recommendations. Sorry. So if you've been digging into books more rather than podcasts, what about books? Uh, have you come across anything in the in the last year that has shaped the way you yeah, think about I, I life? Yeah, I just reread. That's, that's, a, that's a good one. I I just reread in the past year Deep Work by Cal Newport. Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with Cal from podcasts? Yeah, yeah he's got a podcast. No, I just, you know, deep work's really changed the way I operate as a professional. I think that having cloudy thoughts and and not having a clear to-do list really mess with um, your ability to function at a high cognitive level. So maybe this comes back to that honeybee research back in the in the day, but I really uh, I really focus on now on getting blocks of time set apart with no interruptions. So, you know, whether that means grabbing a notebook and hiking to the top of a mountain and sitting there for four hours and thinking about something or just shutting my office door and turning off all my technology to really dive deep into problems and solutions rather than having a scatterbrain with Slack going off and your phone going off. I mean, you know, at Lacuna, we were running customer support for years. So, you know, we'd have Slack going 24 hours a day, seven days a week and taking shifts on the weekend. And I'd come back from four overnights, sleep for six hours and go on call to run customer support. So, so I was really on the other end of deep work. So if you haven't, you know, anybody out there who hasn't read deep work, I highly suggest it. I think it goes, doesn't matter if you're sitting down to drop soccer plays for your kids, or if you're trying to build a business, you know, working in, in the way that Cal describes with deep work is something I highly recommend. Called that's going to be. I'm going to download it straight awesome. away because um, it's something I struggle yeah. with. So it's something I, I distraction again. You can you can imagine there's always a hundred things to do. I've got to edit this and do that, and then there's the kids, yeah. there's that and that. And you're right. It's it's mentally yeah. exhausting. It's mentally exhausting to try and do one thing while your mind's busy with five other things in the background. Anyway, and the key is getting rid of the baggage. You you got to get rid of the baggage, right? Like if there's that one thing that's been on your to do list. When you for for five days and is overdue, like I've got a parking ticket. Like, I don't even remember getting a parking <laughs> ticket, but I got a parking ticket thing sent in the mail. So like today, before I did any deep work, I had to get that parking ticket taken away because it would have been on my mind as baggage the whole time I was trying to focus. Um, so not only do you turn off your all your technology, you got to get those things that are going to bother you away so you can. Well, you that's can really good focus. though. It's good, but it's tricky because there's there's often multiple. So what I often try and do is to say, okay, there's what's the important thing that I need to do and focus, dedicate some time on that first and then do all the shitty things I don't yeah. feel like doing. But you're right, but that, yeah. then that is in the back of your head, I've got to do this other thing. But if, yeah. I, if you start, if you open the Pandora's box of the things that are bothering you that need to be done, yeah. it could keep you busy all day. <laughs> <It's a downside. laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's very true. I mean, I think it's to each his own, however it works. But for me, I... It makes sense. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so... Hugh, thanks for the time. It was really good to meet up with you again. Um, you too, man. I'm never going to let you forget about not having the first scanner in Australia. Um, so, <laughs> right, The last question, Aaron. Yeah. One message. You're talking to all the vet new grads in the world, which you kind of are because you're on the on the VetVault podcast. 
and you have a couple of mm-hmm. minutes to give them one message for their careers, one little bit of advice. What's your one message? I guess it would be two things. First, don't take some guy on a podcast too seriously. And the second <laughs> thing would be, you know, like I think the advice that John gave me really resonated, you know, you got to think about veterinary medicine globally. You can't just think about the veterinarian you are right now or the veterinarian you want to be. You got to keep an eye on what's going on in this profession. You got to stay relevant because if you don't, you're going to get behind. And it doesn't mean you have to be an expert of all things. It doesn't mean you have to read every journal, but, you know, listening to some podcasts and surfing around and what's going on is really important. And remembering that impact is always should come first. And I think in today's profession, we, we sometimes, or I guess most of the time as veterinarians, let that come at a cost to us. And you need to have a buddy to stop that from happening. You know, so think globally. Don't forget that impact, whether it's one patient at a time or doing something big, you know, to affect multiple patients. Those are those are equally as important. But also, you're not alone in this profession and it does get tough. Those things are real. I've experienced them. And you got to have the network to support through that. And you've got to be that network for other people. And then if you do those things, this is an awesome profession. I mean, where veterinary medicine and pet health is going with all these things we're talking about, very, very, as a new grad coming into this, I would say it's just as cool as being an astronaut. So, you know, whoa, yeah, I said it. I said it. This is my astronaut, right? I mean, with what's going on in vet med right now, coming into this space now compared to the 30 years ago, very fortunate to be a new grad in veterinary medicine with all the doors out there and what's going on. So go get them. Okay, two quick things before we go. He has Kadir. They're making a super aggressive play at winning your business. So they have a deal where if you switch your in-house labs to Heska before the end of June, they will give your clinic free consumables for six months. Mm-hmm. Now, there are obviously some requirements that your practice will need to meet, but you are not going to see this special advertised on their website or anywhere else. They're making it available exclusively to you guys, our listeners. So give them a call to see if you qualify for six months of free consumables. Now, I know that many of you are not practice owners, so how much the lab disposables cost is of no real concern to you. But here's my plan. Go to your boss, and here's what you say. If I can save you tens of thousands of dollars this year, guaranteed, can I have half of what we save? That's it. Don't tell them anything else yet. Only when they say yes, and maybe sign a little contract, do you tell them about this deal. Seriously, try it. I would love it if someone emails us six months from now and tells me that they've just earned themselves a $30,000 bonus. Okay, the next thing, VetVault Live. We're planning a mini conference right here in Noosa on the glorious Sunshine Coast, which today, after two months, is finally sunny again. We've locked in Professor Jill Madison and Professor Dave Church, two world-class medicine teachers who I'm sure you're all familiar with. We have them locked in for the 23rd and 24th of November this year, and we're going to work them real hard for some intensive learning sessions filled with questions and workshops and case studies. This is not going to be your average kind of conference. It is the Vetfeld after all. Our key topics will be endocrinology conundrums and clinical reasoning. But if you've ever listened to them on any of our clinical podcasts, you'll know that we'll definitely stray far and wide. We're also planning a bit of fun, all work and no play and all that sort of stuff, right? likely involving the beautiful waterways and the mountains around Noosa for a day or two before and after the clinical event. So far, we've locked in our speakers and our venues, 
but we're still tidying up a few details before we officially start advertising. But we thought we'd tell our listeners about it first. The thing is, it's going to be a small event. We're talking 50 people's max to keep it nice and intimate. And we'd love it if we could fill the room with VetVault listeners. So here's what we're doing. Our VetVault clinical subscribers will get first pick, and then we're going to get the rest of our listeners, that's you guys, in through the door at a discounted rate. So if you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at vetveldpodcast at gmail.com to reserve a spot. Make sure to tell us that you heard about it on the podcast. And then once we have final details and pricing, you will get a first in best dressed special kind of special. We hope to see you there.